You are the God who came. You are the God who takes away sin. And today, we worship you. Amen. Well, good morning. My name is Carmen. I'm one of the staff members here at Daybreak, and I'm really glad to be here with you this morning as we continue this series that Pastor Rick just mentioned, Surprised by Christmas. And through the course of this series, what we're doing is we're taking a look at some of the surprising and often somewhat scandalous characters that appear in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, kind of show up in his family tree. And if you're anything like me, when you look at your family tree, you realize that family trees can be a little interesting, right? When I look at my family tree, I see a number of maybe what we would call eccentric people in my family. I have a great aunt or an Aunt Ruth who one time got her ear stuck in her car door. She actually needed medical attention to extract it. We have no idea how she did such a thing, but that was kind of typical of something that would happen to Aunt Ruth. I have an Aunt Karen who one time spent the afternoon trying to get her nose stuck in a refrigerator door because she had heard that someone had gotten their nose stuck in a refrigerator door and she didn't understand how that could happen. So she spent her afternoon trying to make it happen. Then I have my uncle Dale, who is a little eccentric in that when he gets sick, he likes to wear a skirt because they're more comfortable and it makes him feel better. Like There's some wackiness that happens in my family. And outside of the eccentric ones, we have some that are not only eccentric, they're just downright criminal, truth be told. I have a cousin who spent time in jail incarcerated for running a pyramid scheme. I have a cousin who was unable to attend our wedding because he was wanted by police, and if he came to our wedding, they would know where he was. And so in an effort to evade the police, he had to decline our wedding invitation. So, like, and this is all a Mennonite family, just so you know. Like, (laughs) there's, like, just a lot of stuff. that We have enough fodder to make, like, an entire Mennonite reality series, I think, in our family. It's, It's kind of bizarre. But, you know, I have a little over 80 first cousins, and so I'm convinced that when you shake a family tree that large the crazies are just going to fall out. Like sooner or later, the crazies fall out. And that's kind of what's happening here in Jesus' family tree. As Matthew's tracing this lineage, like there's a lot of people to go back through. And as he shakes that family tree, you see like there's a number of of crazies that kind of fall out. But the thing that's strange about Matthew's genealogy that he tells at the beginning of the story, he starts the story of the birth of Christ with the genealogy, And the thing that's strange to me is that as Matthew traces this genealogy, it seems like he goes out of his way to highlight the crazies in the family tree. Like most of us would be like pushing those off to the side. Matthew's like, no, I want you to see the craziness and the messed up people that have happened in the lineage of Jesus Christ. Why would he do that? Well, I believe that he did that because he wanted us to know that these people are precisely the point of the gospel story. Jesus didn't come so that he could make the people who were already well better. He came to heal the sick, the broken, those who were messed up. And this is what Matthew wants us to understand. You see, any previous religious system, and honestly, any religious system outside of Christianity today, relies on what we have done in order to earn the good graces of God. 
people are required to jump through hoops or to try to do things to earn the favor, to earn the approval of God. And they live lives hoping, hoping that they've been good enough to earn God's grace. But then Jesus comes along and he introduces this whole new way of thinking, this new paradigm for religion. And he's saying, it's not about what you've done. This is about me and what I've done. It's about God coming and being among you and with you and from you and for you and it becoming righteousness on your behalf because of what I've done on the cross. This is a brand new way of thinking because for century upon century, everyone had tried to earn the approval of God. You think of the Jewish people and the letter of the law. That's what the Pharisees and the Sadducees were all about. We have to follow the letter of the law because that's what makes us right with God. That's what earns my righteousness. And even outside of the Jewish religious system, if you think um, context culturally from the day that this was written, there were all kinds of other people that would have worshipped Greek gods. And there were all kinds of strange hoops you had to jump through in order to hope, not even be guaranteed, but hope to earn the approval of God. And that's what makes what Jesus was coming along and saying so revolutionary because it was a brand new way of saying, no, it's not about what you have done. It's about what God has done for you. And this is what Matthew is trying to point out. Matthew wants to make sure that the reader gets this. He didn't want the audience to be stuck in some system of religiosity that says it's all about me and I'm the center of it and it's all about how righteous I can be. He wanted them to get it. That Jesus came from some broken and some messed up people because that is who is precisely the point of the story. And so he points out all of the crazies in the family tree. He points out the award-winning sinners and the colossal sinners and all those people that messed up royally because he wants us to get it, that those people are the point of the story. And I think that for Matthew, this was intensely personal as well. If you remember, we talked about this last week, Matthew was a tax collector. And as a tax collector, he was considered a traitor. He was considered corrupt. He was despised. And if people were looking at Matthew and their family tree, he would be the one that they would point to as the one like, let's just not mention him. And Matthew knew that. When Matthew looked at his own righteousness, he knew that he was sunk. And then along comes this man named Jesus. And Jesus tells him, and not only tells him, but shows him by walking through life with him for several years together, shows him that, no, Matthew, it's not about your righteousness. It's about me. I want to bear that burden for you. I want to shoulder the righteousness for you. I am the only one who can make you perfect. And so for Matthew, as he processes this whole new paradigm, he wants the readers to get it because it's so personal for him. Because it would have meant something incredibly profound, especially to Matthew, knowing who he was, and then walking with this God who said, my grace is enough for all of you. And Matthew highlighted broken people because they are the point of the story. And I realize that you and I today are still the point of the story. Us in all of our brokenness. I realize that even today I still try to rely on my own righteousness so often to earn the approval of God. That if I do enough 
if I do the right things, all the things that Christians are supposed to do, and even if I base it on if I'm pursuing God hard enough, am I doing enough to pursue God, to run after him? And that's not a bad thing. Those are good things to, to try to do what is right and to pursue God. But when I use that as my gauge of whether or not I'm righteous, then I've missed the mark. I've missed the whole point of God's grace. And Matthew's saying he wants us to live something different, to understand something different. Because when I get in those moments when I realize that I'm relying on my own righteousness and all of the things that I've done, and then I stop and I take a few moments to really look inside of myself and I see the discrepancy between what happens inside and what I try to show everyone on the outside and I realize my righteousness is not going to be enough. My righteousness isn't even going to get me out the back door, let alone into the presence of God. And in those moments, I have these overwhelming moments of gratitude and gratefulness that grace covers the gap for me. Where my righteousness can't extend nearly far enough, grace comes in, God comes in, Jesus comes in, and he says, I'm going to bridge the gap for you. And then I look at all of these broken people who are planted right there in the middle of Jesus' family tree, and I realize these are the point of the story because they prove that his grace is enough. It's not about what I've done. It's about what has already been done for me. And so let's take a look today at this genealogy that Matthew is laying out. And we're going to focus today specifically on one story in the genealogy. We'll get to some of the other ones a little bit down the road in this series. But we're going to focus in on one story of brokenness and grace today. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew 1, verse 1. Or in your program guide today, you can find the scripture in there. And this is what it says in Matthew 1.1. 1, 1. This is a record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac was the father of Jacob, Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, who was the mother of Tamar. Okay, now what's interesting to me about this whole genealogy that's laid out here are kind of the parentheticals, the, the side notes, the things in parentheses, or the kind of the things that didn't need to be mentioned, but for some reason Matthew decided to throw them in there. Matthew makes a special point of saying that Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. He didn't have to add that brother thing in there, but he did. And then he goes on to say, and Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Now, this is particularly a name that you don't really want to mention if you want to boost credibility for your family's reputation. And we'll get into her story a little bit later. But Matthew is pointing out Tamar, whose story is very scandalous. And he also makes a point of, of comparing Judah and his brothers. It's like he wants you to remember that Judah also has these brothers. So he could have just stopped at Judah, but he has to point out that Judah and his brothers. Now, most of us don't know a whole lot about Judah. If I asked you to turn to your neighbor today and tell them everything you know about Judah, chances are the conversation would be fairly short. But if I asked you to turn to your neighbor and Tell, you the, tell them everything you know about one of Judah's brothers, the conversation would be a little bit longer because Judah had a very famous brother, and his name was Joseph. 
most of us know something of the story of Joseph. Even if you never went to church a day in your life, you know something of the story of Joseph because Joseph had an amazing technicolor dream coat, right? Everyone knows a little something about that story. And so Matthew is pointing out that Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. He's making this comparison. And so Judah has this famous brother, Joseph, and it seems like if Matthew was trying to boost credibility, he either A, would have completely taken the brother's phrase out of it so that there wouldn't be the comparison between Judah and Joseph, who was this hero person, or he would have kind of talked up Joseph, saying, okay, Joseph is kind of in this family line. Because if Matthew were really trying to impress his readers, he may have dropped Joseph's name here because Joseph was a hero. Joseph was a guy who got everything right. Joseph lived with integrity and character. He was one of those guys that did everything so right. He was so perfect that, have you ever known one of those people that was so perfect you almost hate them? Like, how can you be so perfect? It just drives me a little nuts. Joseph was that guy. A man of integrity, a man of character, a man of leadership, a man of of perseverance, a man of forgiveness, a man who made right choices in the midst of adversity time and time and time again. Joseph in the Bible is almost like this hero savior type person. He ends up saving a country and his whole family. Joseph is a hero. And yet the funny thing is that God didn't pick Joseph to carry the line of Christ. God looked down at those 12 brothers, the sons of Jacob, and he's looking through them, and he passes right over Joseph, the nearly perfect one. He passes right over him, and he says, Judah. I'm going to pick Judah. Now, you and I, we would have never picked Judah. Uh-uh. We would have looked at those boys and said, like, yeah, no, Joseph's the one who should be the lineage of Christ. Clearly, Judah, no. He's a little bit messed up. And Matthew wants us to get that. God didn't pick the perfect one. He picked the one who was messed up. And this is the point of the gospel. Now, you might be asking, what made Judah such a hot mess? Well, we're going to talk about his story today. So let's look at that a little bit. So Judah's story is almost like a sidebar in the middle of Joseph's story. Joseph has pages and pages written about him in the Bible. Outside of Jesus Christ, Joseph gets more press time, if you will, than any other singular biblical character in the Bible, as far as his story being told in its entirety. So Joseph is kind of a big deal, and Judah's story is kind of couched in the middle of Joseph's story. And Joseph is his father's favorite. Joseph was born to Jacob and Rachel, and Rachel was Jacob's favorite wife. Jacob had married Rachel after kind of a long and tumultuous process to get there, and then Rachel had been infertile for years, And finally, finally, she gives birth to a son, and that son is Joseph. And so Joseph becomes the apple of his father's eye, and he makes no qualms about letting everybody know that Joseph is just his favorite. He gives him the coat of many colors. The Technicolor dream coat comes in at this stage, and he makes sure that everybody knows that Joseph is his favorite. And so his brothers are really jealous. His brothers don't hold a lot of esteem for Joseph because he's just this bratty little kid that is winning the attention and the affection of their father, and they don't like that so much. So they're jealous, and they're resentful, and they're bitter towards Joseph. And one day, Jacob sends Joseph out into the fields to check on his brothers. And here's what happens as that, as that unfolds. Um, I'm going to read this from Genesis 37. I'm going to begin in verse 18. Your program guide picks up at verse 26. I'm going to read a little bit of it before we get to the part that's actually in your program guide today. 
But Genesis 37, beginning in chapter, I'm sorry, in verse 18. When Joseph's brothers saw him coming, they recognized him at a distance. As he approached, they made plans to kill him. Here comes the dreamer, they said. Come on, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns. We can tell our father a wild animal has eaten him. Then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. Now, Joseph had had some dreams in which his brothers bowed down to him and worshipped him. And he made the mistake of telling his brothers about these dreams. Of course, this just fueled the fire of their anger and resentment against him. Because who does he think he is saying that we're going to bow down to him someday? Like, just brat, right? (laughs) So when Reuben heard of their scheme, he came to Joseph's rescue. Let's not kill him. Reuben was another brother. Let's not kill him, he said. Why should we shed any blood? Let's just throw him into this empty cistern here in the wilderness. Then he'll die without our laying a hand on him. Reuben was secretly planning to rescue Joseph and return him to his father. So even Reuben seems like he would have been a better choice than Judah, right? So when Joseph's brothers arrived, his brothers ripped off the beautiful robe he was wearing. Then they grabbed him and threw him into a cistern. Now, the cistern was empty. There was no water in it. Well, that was very nice of them, right? Like, at least they threw him into a dry cistern instead of a wet and damp, nasty one. Very kind of them. And then, just as they were sitting down to eat, and when I read that, I was like, what? Just as they were sitting down to eat, you throw your brother in a pit, and I guess that works up an appetite or something? So you just, okay, now let's sit down and have some food together. They looked up, and they saw a caravan of camels in the distance coming toward them. And Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain by killing our brother? We'd have to cover up the crime. So Judah's saying, well, you know what? It it seems like it would be a mess because if we just throw him in the cistern and let him die, then there's going to be a body that's going to be found and then there's going to be questions and that seems like an awful lot of work to have to cover all that up. Wouldn't it be better if if we sold him instead? So he says, instead of hurting him, let's sell him to those Ishmaelite traders. That way, it's a win-win. We get rid of Joseph, and we can turn a little bit of a profit at the same time. Like, this is a good deal, right? After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. Now, this is a tiny blip of compassion on Judah's screen, although I have to wonder if it was really a blip of compassion, truly, or whether it was just another selling point. Like, hey, well, he is our brother, so this is why we should do it. Whether he really felt the compassion or not, we don't know. But his brothers agreed. So when the Ishmaelites, who were Midianite traders, came by, Joseph's brothers pulled him out of the cistern and sold him to them for 20 pieces of silver. And the traders took him to Egypt. So Joseph gets sold and marched off to Egypt. And from Judah's perspective, this is the last time that he is ever expecting to see or hear anything of his brother. As far as he's concerned, his brother is gone. That story's done and over with. So as he counts his coins, he watches his brother being hauled off into slavery. That's kind of dark, right? It's not the kind of guy that you think God would pick. But to me, as dark as that part of the story is, it seems even worse when you consider what it would have been like when he got home. Because when they get home, they go to their father, and remember, Jacob adores this boy, adores Joseph. And so these brothers go home, and they take this robe that they had ripped off of Joseph, the one that was very uniquely Joseph's robe, and they rip it apart a little bit more. They dip it in animal blood. They take it home to Jacob and they say, Father, I'm sorry, but we don't know where Joseph is. We found his cloak, his coat, 
And it looks like it's been ripped apart by animals. And see, there's blood all over it. So he must have been eaten by wild animals. There's not even a shred of his body left. So I'm sorry, but that's the end of Joseph. And for years after that, that's what Jacob and Rachel have to live with. Can you imagine the horror of that from the heart of a parent? To imagine what that must have been like for your boy. To have been ripped apart by animals. The violence of that. The nightmares they must have had. Imagining what that was like for him in those final moments. Believing that he had been shredded apart by animals. And how painful it must have been. And how scary it must have been. And how they weren't there to protect him. And I can just imagine the agony that they wallowed in for years after that. And the whole time... Judah knows the truth. Judah could have alleviated at least a little of that suffering for them by saying, you know what, I'm sorry we lied. Joseph is alive. He's in Egypt somewhere. At least that would have given them a shred of hope. But no, Judah pretends that the lie that he sold is the truth. And he lives it out and he lives it out looking like the good boy on the outside when inside he's holding this secret, holding this darkness, holding something that he knows is true about who he is and what he's done, while on the outside he's pretending that he's someone good. I'm wondering if you know what that feels like to live in that place, knowing that you're holding something dark inside and yet managing the image and the reputation on the outside. To know that there's this discrepancy about who you are really inside yourself while maintaining this image, this external image, outside. Living the the good girl. I have to be honest that that whole tension between what is really happening inside versus what reality or external reputation portrayed on the outside, that tension defines pretty much the entirety of my teenage years. I lived in that because I wanted to be all things to all people. And I wanted to have the reputation of the good girl. And so with my parents and my church friends, I was the good girl. And with my school friends and my work friends, I was a completely different person. And so there's this darkness inside that knows that there's this huge discrepancy between who I really am and this image that I'm portraying. And this image is changing according to whatever group I'm currently with. And I'm trying to manage all of this, trying to keep it all straight. You can't live that way without a lot of secrecy, without a lot of lies, without a lot of deception. And when I look back in those years of my life, the biggest emotional memory I have is this feeling of spinning plates, that that's all I was doing was spinning plates hoping that, you know, this person, I can keep this one going, and and then this one going, and then this one going, and oh, I got to make sure that I keep this one spinning over here. And I had this tension that was happening inside of me, and it was exhausting. And I lived in this constant fear that sooner or later, I was going to get found out. That sooner or later, those plates were going to come crashing down, and I was going to be exposed for the fraud that I was, and I was going to be unlovable, and I was going to be a disappointment to everyone around me. And eventually, it broke me. And I don't have time to get into the details of that story right now today. But suffice it to say, 
that when I hit that broken place, I learned something absolutely beautiful. I learned that God loves broken places. And God loves broken places because those are precisely the places where his grace can expound. His grace can fill. That's where we experience his grace. You see, there is no darkness that is too great to be beyond the grace of God. And you and I were Judah. Secret-keeping, self-justifying, deceiving, looking like we have it all together on the outside while inside we're really falling apart. Judah. And this Judah, this is the one that God picked to be in the lineage of Jesus Christ. Why? Because he wanted to capture those of us who are stuck in that dark darkness. He wanted to capture those of us who know that there's a discrepancy between who we are inside and who we are outside, that know that there's this gap. And he wanted to capture us and say that gap between those two places, I fill that. My grace fills that. I came for that. Matthew wants us to know that. That's why God has picked Judah. For those of us stuck in this way of thinking that says, this is all about what I do and how good I am and how much I have done to try to earn or deserve God's approval. And God's saying, no, it's not about you. It's about me. It's about what I've done. It's about my grace being enough. This is the story that Matthew wants to point out that we know that even in the darkness, God's grace is enough. Now, I wish that I could tell you that this darkness of Judah was kind of the extent of the story, but unfortunately it's not, because at this point, Judah's story goes from sad to just like downright creepy, truth be told. So Judah goes on with life, pretending like nothing had ever happened, pretending that the Joseph thing just kind of got brushed to the side. That never really happened. Truth doesn't come out about that. And Judah goes on with life, and he gets married, and he has a few sons. And the first son marries a woman named Tamar. And Tamar is married to the first son, and the first son dies. Bible says he did evil in the sight of the Lord, and he was destroyed. We don't know anything about that story, what that was all about, but he dies. And so culture says that the widow of someone who dies in the family must be given to another person in the family, the next son in the family, because they have a responsibility and a code of honor to take care of her. That is their responsibility. And so Tamar then is given as a wife to the next of Judah's sons, who also ends up dying. And so now Tamar is alone again. And by rights now, Tamar is to be given to the next son in line, whose name is Shelah. Well, Judah isn't so thrilled with Tamar at this point because he's thinking it's all Tamar's fault that his sons keep dying. She's a black widow of sorts, of course. And so Judah really doesn't want to take care of this woman anymore, but he knows that in order to keep reputation's sake, he needs to promise her that he will. And so he tells Tamar, you know what? Shayla isn't quite old enough to be married yet, so why don't you go on home to your parents for a little while, and when Shayla is old enough, then I'll call you, Okay. Just, just go home. You, you wait. I'll, I'll call. Just wait, wait for the call over there, honey. 
Judah has no intention of ever calling Tamar. He just kind of pushes her off to the side, trying to get her out of the way so that he can kind of go on with life and not have to deal with Tamar. So, in that culture, Tamar was in a very precarious position because she's realizing time is going on and she's not getting the call from Judah to call her back to marry this third son. And she is in a very precarious position because in that culture, a single woman was incredibly vulnerable, especially an aging single woman, because you needed an heir to take care of you. She needed an heir from this family in order to have any kind of rights, and she needed someone to take care of her as she aged because there wasn't a social system available. There were no food banks or shelters for people who didn't have resources or families to take care of them. There was no WIC program. There was none, none of that existed. If you didn't have that family support system, especially as a woman who had very few, if any, rights in that culture, It was literally the difference between life and death. You would die if you didn't have any of that together. And so Tamar realizes she's heading into this advanced maternal age category, and there's a limited amount of time that she has before she won't be able to produce an heir, and she thinks, I need to take matters into my own hands because Judah is not doing what he is supposed to do for me. And so she gets a little scheming, if you will, So Tamar, what she decides to do is to disguise herself as a prostitute and go sit by the temple gate, knowing full well that Judah would come along and knowing a little of the character of Judah, knowing that he would be interested in hiring her services. So she dresses herself like a prostitute. She waits by the temple gate, and sure enough, Judah comes along. And Judah doesn't recognize her. Now, granted, she was dressed a little differently, but you'd think the woman that he was supposed to be taking care of, he would have recognized, but he doesn't recognize her. So Judah, being the upstanding man that he is, he decides to hire her services. And they discuss what price would be for the services, and they decide that the appropriate price would be the cost of one goat. And so they go off, and they you know, (laughs) do what it is that they had agreed to do together. And when they're done with that, these are not stories that you think you're going to have to tell at Christmas, okay? (laughs) There's just no good way to say what's happening here, but I think you get the point. So they're done. It's time to make payment. And Judah doesn't happen to have a goat on him at the time. So Tamar suggests, how about you give me your ring which is your family seal ring, very unique to Judah, and your rod, also unique to Judah. You give me those things kind of as collateral. You send a messenger tomorrow, bring me the goat, I'll give you back these things, I'll get my goat, we'll be square. Judah says, great. So Judah goes home, next day he sends a messenger, he tells the guy like, look, take this goat to this woman, don't ask me any questions about that, just go do what I'm telling you to take this goat to this woman, get my ring and my rod back, come back home, don't speak of this ever again. Fine. Messenger goes. He looks for the woman who's working at the temple gate. Can't find her. These women always work the same corner. Why can't he find her? So he starts asking around. Where's the woman who usually works here? They're like, there is no woman who works here. So confused, he goes home and he tells Judah, like, I went to go find this woman. They tell me that she's not there. I don't know what to do. And Judah's like, yeah, she's got my ring and she's got my rod. But he can't start asking any more questions about this woman because if he starts asking questions about how to find her, it's going to 
be evident what he had done and what activities he had engaged in. So he's like, okay, forget it. Just let her keep the darn things. Let her keep the ring. Let her keep the rod. I'll keep my goat. It makes me a little mad, but we'll let it go. You could say that Tamer got his goat. <laughs> Sorry, bad joke. <laughs> so a few months later, you got to find some humor in this story, right? <laughs> so a few months later, the servant comes running up to Judah. And the servant runs up to Judah, and he's like, guess what? You are never going to believe this, but I just heard that Tamar, who never remarried, by the way, Tamar is pregnant. This is good news for Judah because now this has just solved the problem of Tamar for him, right? Because now she is the one who has been wrong. It's not him that's going to go back on his honor if he doesn't honor this agreement for her to marry Shelah. Instead, now he gets to be the righteous one because she is the one who has defied him. She is the one who has done wrong, has been shameful. And Judah gets all self-righteous about this because that's typical of someone who keeps secrets. Secrets quite often manifest themselves as self-righteousness, right? Because when you know that there's something inside of you that's not right, you try to pacify it. You try to make it feel better. And usually you do that by comparing yourself to other people. Well, yeah, I have this little thing, but look at that person. You, you are more wrong than I am. You did something worse than me. I'm not that bad compared to that. Self-righteousness manifests itself in secrets. And so Judah, in his self-righteous little snit, says, Tamar was wrong. I am more right than she. She was wrong, and she must be burned at the stake. Public, not figuratively, like literally, There's like a public execution that she is to be brought out and she is to be burned. And so the community gathers for this execution day. And this is where Tamar has to lay her cards on the table and hope that her scheme has worked. Because Tamar calls a messenger to her and she says, I need you to take this ring and this rod to Judah and I need you to say this to him. I need you to tell him that the father of my child is the one who owns this ring, and this rod. And then ask him, she's got a little spunk to her, then ask him, do you recognize these? (laughs) Because the man who owns these is the father of my child. So the messenger takes these things and he runs up to Judah and he's like, Judah, Tamar sent these things and she told me to tell you that the owner of these things is the father of her child and I don't know what she's talking about. You know what she's talking about? Because I don't know what she's talking about. And of course Judah knows what she's talking about. He's been caught. He is on the brink of being exposed for the fraud that he is. All of his junk inside is is on the brink of getting ready to be thrown out into the public sphere. And so what does Judah do? Essentially he goes outside and he's like, okay folks, there will be no fire today. Bonfire canceled for today. Take your marshmallow sticks and go home. We are not going to be doing this today. Don't ask any questions. Just be about your business, okay? No more fire for today. And then in a rare moment of submission and humility, Judah goes to Tamar and he says, you are more right than I am because I didn't keep my promise. That was huge for Judah. You are more right 
than I am because I didn't keep my promise. And Tamar gives birth to twins, the oldest of which is Perez, who is in the lineage of Jesus Christ. And this is the story that Matthew decides to pull out and to draw attention to in the middle of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. This is the story, the story that we would have swept under the rug and preferred not to bring up, not to mention, let's just pretend that that never happened. Matthew brings it up and he's saying, the reason I'm saying this is because this is the point of the story. There is nothing too scandalous to be beyond the grace of God. There is nothing too scandalous to be outside the grace of God. I want you to get this. Now fast forward another decade or so. There's a famine in the land, and Jacob's family, Judah, all of the brothers, they're suffering because there's not enough food to eat, There's no rain, they can't grow crops, they don't have food, and they hear that over in Egypt, there's this guy who's handing out food. He's like the second in command, the prime minister of Egypt, if you will, second in command next to Pharaoh, and he's over there, he had stored up food these last seven years, and he's handing out food. And in a last-ditch effort to save themselves, they go to Egypt to see this prime minister, who is Joseph, but they don't know that. And they go and they ask for food. And Joseph messes with them a little bit. And I don't really know what that's all about. The only thing I can surmise is that maybe Joseph was testing them to see if they had changed at all. From all those years ago when they sold him into slavery, maybe he's testing them to see, are they any different now than what they were before? I don't know. But Joseph messes with them for a little bit. And then he calls them into this this room to have a meal together with him. And they're still like, I have no idea what's happening here. Why is this guy messing with us? They have no idea that this is Joseph. And so he calls them into the room and he says to them, I am Joseph. Now, can you imagine what that moment must have been like for Judah? What he must have been thinking just then? He would have been like, oh no, we are in big trouble now because he knew what he would do if he were Joseph. He knew what they had done to Joseph. Joseph had been bullied, he had been picked on, he had been discarded like trash, and now Joseph's in this position of power and authority. He literally holds their life in his hands, and Judah knows exactly what he would do if he were in that position. He would destroy them. Destroy them. Judah knows that. But what does Joseph do? Joseph offers forgiveness and grace. He says this um, in Genesis 45, beginning at verse 3. I am Joseph, he said to his brothers. Is my father still alive? Joseph has been dying for his family all of these years. He wants to know about his dad. Even after all that had happened, he still has this, this connection to his family. But his brothers were speechless. They were stunned to realize that Joseph was standing there in front of them. Please, come closer, he says to them. Now, can you imagine? Come closer? Why? Are you going to cut my head off or something? Why do you want me to come closer? And Joseph just says, no, come closer. So they came closer, and he said again, I'm Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into slavery in Egypt. But don't be upset. 
And don't be angry with yourselves for selling me to this place. It was God who sent me here ahead of you to preserve your lives. Joseph becomes their protector. He pulls them in, into this place in Egypt. He allows them to live under his protection because he has, like, huge authority in the land of Egypt. And he gives them food, and they not only survive, but they thrive and they prosper in this place. And Judah, who never did a single thing to earn it or deserve it, he never apologized to Joseph as best as we can tell. He never changed who he was. Up until this point, I have to imagine that something changed after this. But Judah, who didn't do a single thing to earn it or to deserve it, only has to turn and accept the gift of grace that Joseph offers to accept the forgiveness and to accept the grace. Judah knew what he deserved, but what he got instead was grace. Broken people know what they deserve, but God gives them grace. And this is the point of the story. God decides to go through the liar, the deceiver, the self-righteous, the one who is really messed up, the one who is most desperately in need of grace. And he goes through this one to bring his son into the world. And this is why Matthew points out Judah's story and Tamar's story in the lineage of Jesus Christ because Judah's story is a picture of you and me. We are the point of the story. Broken people who need grace. It's a picture of God being available to everyone, especially those who don't deserve it. God's grace abounds. And all we need to do is to turn towards it. We don't deserve it. We haven't earned it in any way. We only need to turn towards it and accept the forgiveness and the grace that it offers. And as we do that, it changes who we are on the inside. Don't think that you can come to grace with some like greedy handout mentality because when you fully get it, it will change who you are on the inside. It will change your behavior. It will change the way that you think. It will change the way that you relate to God. It will change the way that you relate to other people, the way that you forgive, the way that you extend grace because of the grace that you know that you yourself have received. When we live in that place of grace, It changes who we are. It heals the brokenness. And that is the point of the story. Let's pray together. Father God, your grace is astounding. We sit in awe of it today. Your grace is beyond almost anything that we could possibly imagine. It reaches into the dark places. It reaches into the secret places, the the broken places, the places that we would rather hide, and, and it heals them if we let it. And I pray that today you would give us a fresh glimpse of your grace, that we'd be able to take an honest look at the brokenness and the darkness inside of ourselves and then hold it out 
to you, that we would dare to trust you with those places. Instead of trying to hide them, instead of trying to cover them up, instead of trying to clean them up ourselves, I pray that today we would come to you believing that what you did for us on the cross was enough and that we just need to turn toward it, to receive it, and to let, us, let it change us. Please take our brokenness in your hands and make it beautiful. Amen. Will your grace run out if I let you
Only our God could take our ashes and turn them into something beautiful. I'd love for you to take the next few moments just asking how God is inviting you to respond today. If you can reach into your program guide, you can fill out this little card that says response card. Fill out your name and information on the front. And in the back, there's a place at the bottom for you to write out your prayer request or your response to God today. In these next few moments, I invite you to consider, is God inviting you to consider maybe a gap that exists between who you are inside and who you are outside? And maybe he wants to speak to you something today about that, about the grace filling the gap so that it can change you and bring those pieces together for you. Or maybe you're here today and you know, you know what you deserve. There's no doubt in your mind. And maybe today is the day that God is inviting you to turn and to just accept his forgiveness and his grace and to begin that journey of transformation into being made new and being made beautiful. Or maybe you have another prayer request that you want to write in that little space down there today. But I just encourage you to spend these next few moments asking God what he wants to say to you today about embracing your own brokenness.